vipassana, being with the nature of how things are, being being with the nature of how things are. Uh, so if we're attempting to be with the nature of how things are, uh, we come to understand that this isn't a state-oriented practice. But that's very hard for us to um, practice. <laughs> uh, and we, we get fooled so many times because we um, will feel like a good sitting is really what it's all about. Right, you know, it's like, <laughs> or a good walking, or a good sleep, or you know, whatever we call a good whatever. That's what it's about, and yet we just can't pull that off, right? It's like there's this inevitable fall from grace, you know, and it's it's very hard to understand that process when we're in it. You know, we, we get it's um. Sometimes I wish we could encourage people to reread the um, description of, you know, Vipassana retreat uh, just before they come in, because we often miss intensive. You know, it's called an intensive (laughs) retreat, and it's intensive because of this um, way in which we uh, really learn to access these beautiful qualities and that when the mindfulness and the energy the a little concentration some equanimity when they come together even for a few seconds uh, we know that feels like we've come home and we know that is one reason why we're here and why we're practicing and yet you know it it disappears it falls apart and then it comes together again, and it falls apart. And how does it come back together again? By finally letting it go, right? It just won't come back if we're attached to it. There's a a very deep... um, description of happiness in this practice. It's, there's no greater happiness than peace. So this isn't discounting that there is the happiness of pleasure at all. We're not trying to get rid of pleasure. We're not trying to get rid of pain. Uh, but there's a, a... Sometimes I wish the word happiness wasn't used sometimes because we tend to have such a... Um, Connection with happiness as something um, to do with pleasure. And in this context, it doesn't. Sometimes I like to call it joy beyond its objects. It, it's actually a piece of a poem by Pablo Neruda, but it, he described joy as joy beyond its objects. It's something deeper, and this deeper is... Uh, when we have overcome 
the pleasure pain syndrome. So understanding what um, Jesse referred to this afternoon in the question and answer period, the second foundation of mindfulness, which is this um, attunement to Vedana, that each moment of consciousness, and by consciousness we're meaning here, hearing consciousness, hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, tasting, thinking, that that moment by moment with these different consciousnesses, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. And by feeling, it isn't meaning or referring to emotion. It means a mental feeling. It's a mental feeling that arises spontaneously with every mind moment. Which it's, again, you know, it's kind of like that existential predicament we're born into. That is it. it. It's that there's hearing, you know, maybe three moments of hearing, two moments of seeing, three moments of thinking, you know, whatever. It's just this constant stream. But that in and of itself would be intense enough, right? But on top of it, each mom- each of those different moments... You know, and they're, the sense doors, I love it. The sense doors are sense sensi- sensitivities, eye sensitivity, ear sensitivity, nose sensitivity. There's a reason they're calling it sensitive. You know, ear, we are picking up the speed of sound. We're asking you to be mindful of the speed of sound. Concurrent. When we're asking you to be concurrent, it means that your attention has connected with the with the sound, and then we're asking you to stay with it. So, if you're wondering if you slip off, why? Why? It's friggin' fast. It's fast. And then sight, the speed of light, much faster than sound. Yeah, to be mindful of seeing rather than caught up in what is seen. Smell, taste, body sensations. They're moving so quickly. With chronic pain, some people might think otherwise, but they're actually, you know, moving quickly. And then I think that what we all tend to forget is in this tradition, the Buddhist tradition the mind is considered at the heart center. So the seat of the mind or the seat of consciousness, the seat of knowing, uh, the center of knowing itself is not up in the head, it's in the heart center. Uh, So hearing consciousness, tasting consciousness, smelling consciousness, thinking, it's happening here first. So we can just, even if we kind of took that on kind of some, (laughs) a little bit of um, even if we gave that 20% truth, can you imagine how sensitive this is? You know, that, like, we wonder why incarnations can sometimes be painful. You know, it's like, it's so sensitive. 
that you know that that's the truth. That the truth is there is nothing between us and anything except delusion. So this teaching around Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, with a sound, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling, it, it's karmic. It happens quicker. You can't control it. It just unfolds with every thought, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And we can all know that something can be pleasant for three seconds and suddenly change to unpleasant. Food is a very interesting one with that. Oh, I love carrots. Oh, <laughs> like what happened <laughs> it's interesting or a thought a thought you know a pattern can kind of seem pleasant and then it can get unpleasant or pleasant or neutral so a very you could call this again a very at the least vulnerable world and it's not just humans the squirrel a squirrel will look at you and you know here and it's like a slug or a bird or it's just like you know <laughs> pleasant unpleasant neutral when Jesse and I took a walk yesterday this chipmunk came by and its cheeks were just still you know, with whatever it was storing for winter. But it was so funny. It looked at us and it was like... (laughs) It it almost like couldn't move because if it moved, something would come out of its mouth and it didn't want to lose it, you know. And it's like... (laughs) We're all like that sometimes. (laughs) We're not that far away from it. So being with the nature of how things are, being with this stream of change, this very amazing stream of change, um, requires an awareness that's not imprisoned by experience. It's like if the awareness is um, partial rather than impartial, we're going to suffer. And we have doubt. The doubt happens because we actually believe that we can control reality. So when we believe we can control it, when in actual fact it's not that controllable, then we think it's our fault that we can't control it because we believe we can. And we suffer terribly because we haven't, again, it's just, it's simply that we haven't understood this fully enough. So over time, as you do this practice, you know, and it requires, it's called practice for a reason. You know, you kind of get worn down to understanding this. You know, you, you, you live long enough and you, you pay attention long enough that this becomes very clear, apparent. You know, so that we can actually see that if we think sleepiness isn't a bona fide experience, and we're fighting it, you can see that we're going to suffer. Or if doubt isn't okay. So if you see us, you know, in the course of a day or the course of a week, and and you have um, maybe compassion 
arises for something painful. But then maybe anger arises. You know, which one do we think um, makes us, you know, better or a better experience versus the awareness that doesn't pick and choose, that is not affected by either? That's that happiness of peace because we all want peace. We don't want violence. But the violence in which we're relating to reality is extreme. You know, we are at war. Srinathar Gadara in the book I Am That, he said that um, the guru or the teacher is at war with the personal self, the, the teachers at war with the student until the end. At war. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I love that. It's the truth. You know, with that little self, you know, that little petty self, you know, that's what the war is with. But then do we come to understand it versus hate it? It's all coming from understanding that, you know, it's that poor little (laughs) chattering self. It just doesn't understand that it's pushing unpleasantness away or holding on to pleasure. You know, it's when we're not understanding it that we suffer. When we... um, take a metaphor like a a flower bud that um, the practice of liberation is the the flower opening. Um, It's such a beautiful metaphor. And unfortunately, when the flower opens, it doesn't get to pick and choose. You know, it's like we'd all kind of like to go, well, (laughs) I'd be happy to open, you know, but I'm only going to open to the good stuff, right? I mean, that, of course, you know, we have to know that that's not wrong or bad. Anybody in their right mind would want that. But it's not the design. You know, but it, 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 it isn't that we have to chastise ourselves for wanting that. Of course we want that. Of course we want the best deal. If you listen to your mind, most of the time you're trying to, you know, arrange reality so that you get the least amount of hurt. Of course. And then you're stuck with the next moment, <laughs> whatever it is, you know. That, that famous line, you can plan for a hundred years, but you don't know what's going to happen. You know, so that, that unexpected, Nisargadatta, he's always saying, it's the, the only thing that's true is the unknown. The only thing that's real is the unexpected. And when we're in alignment with that, we, we don't suffer. We're protected. So when we're... When doubt is happening, it's so fascinating because we're judging the experience as not being good enough. Somehow, the experience is not living up to our expectation or, or our agenda. And this is when it's like when you look at, well... When the definition of happiness is peace in this context of the joy or the happiness or the peace, well, what is it based on? It's based on um, seeing through the expectation. 
seeing through the agenda, seeing through the preference. It's not that we don't have a preference. It's not that we don't have an expectation. In fact, wishful thinking is wishful. It's fine to walk into the hall and hope for the best, right? (laughs) It's fine to go out and walk and hope for the best. Of course we do. And then it's just like it's settling into kind of what's really happening versus what we want to be happening again and again and again. So when the the petals of the flower are opening, you know, it's like we're opening to the rain, the dark, the wind, the light. You know, it's like we're opening to the anger, the happiness, the sadness, the equanimity, the, the endlessness of that process, the sleepiness, the clarity. We can get the most hooked on a deep experience in meditation. I mean, it's amazing. Because we think, then that's how it should be. And it's like, it's no, it's change. It's just that, that the nature of life is change. But then the awareness can start to accept that and learn to be with it. So the awareness, loneliness comes up, and rather than going, <laughs> no, 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 I, you know, that's not okay, right? I don't want loneliness. But if it, it, it's like to be with that loneliness is freedom. To know how to work with that loneliness is freedom. To not be afraid of it is freedom. To have it not have such power over us is, is freedom. Because if we think we've gotten rid of something, it's not freedom. And for me, I learned this the most poignantly with um, uh, the lower back pain I've had in my life. It has come and gone. Uh, and when it's gone and when it when I really hit hard and then when it came back a couple of years later is when I really got this teaching. So what if something comes back? You know, this whole idea of getting rid of something rather than having the skill of a wise, compassionate relationship with something, then it's no problem. You know, if we really know how to work with loneliness, it's like, it might not be that we go, oh, my best friend loneliness, you know, I joke about this. Oh, I was hoping loneliness would happen, you know, right now. That's, you know, you can joke about it because it, it brings some humor to it. But it's, it's, it's to be able to go, oh, of course I don't want this to come up because it's unpleasant. It's not our nature. But it, it's the nature of life for it to come up. In fact, it's one of the deepest emotions, loneliness. Of course. We're stuck with this misperception of reality that, that is loneliness. So when um, Jesse has talked a bunch about um, the concentration and mindfulness um, aspects, but I just wanted to bring it in in relationship to this, that the, um, 
pure concentration is a practice like, say we had a dark room right now, and we put, say we turned out all the lights and just held up the candle, and we, the, the practice would be uh, just keep staring at the candle. And if um, any physical pain comes up, you'd, you'd ignore it and just come to the candle. And if any thinking happened, you'd come to the candle. If fear came up, you'd come to the candle. Basically, <laughs> if anything comes up, you come to the candle, right? And it feels really good. The, the, the actual um, goal of that practice is feeling good. <laughs> we always wonder why we're not doing that practice. Right? I mean, you know, <laughs> why am I doing the You know, because that that feels good. You know, it's like you are repressing and controlling everything. And it feels great. Right? And it's the the nature of it is rest. Solitude. Tranquility. One of the goals of it is tranquility. It's not to knock it. It 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 doesn't lead to wisdom. So vipassana is heading in a different direction, but there's a compromise. The compromise is the anchor, but the anchor is still moving. It's not fixed. So it's not a compromise. Like it's not like. Um, here's fixed concentration and vipassana um, momentary concentration. It, the the compromise is over here. It's not it's not close. It's here because anything that you use as an anchor is still meant to be moving. So you don't get that sense of like losing you know getting your your yourself yourself isn't getting absorbed into um, a fixed fixed. Uh, I remember I don't know if this dates me of course but you know when they first started the Alfred Hitchcock TV show when I was in high school um, that used to terrify me and I loved it like I you know it's so interesting um I'd run down the hall into my bedroom, shut the door, because I'd be so terrified. But then I'd go back for more, you know. <laughs> but this one show, it wasn't its usual horror. It was um, this typical 50s family that was having breakfast um, before the kids were going off to the school bus. And so uh, the mom was really busy, and she's frying eggs, and, you know, the kids are spilling things and joking around, and the father's reading the newspaper. It's that very <laughs> 50s example of a family. And the mother looks, she's had it. You know, she's just gone over some it. You know, she doesn't have any lib- <laughs> like tranquilizer and a coming in. Like, you know, it's, it's like she's, like, gone over the edge. Um, and so you see it building in her, and it's the the it's the whole show. Just it all starts to slow down, <laughs> and you see the milk spilling, and you see the newspaper, and you know you just see the school bus coming, and she yells at the top of her lungs, "Stop! Stop! Stop!" And it stopped. 
permanently. She couldn't get it back going. It was it was the most terrifying thing I ever saw as a kid. You know, it's just like, oh my god. You know, and she couldn't. It was that was that was the show, but it showed her roaming around the streets, and you know, it was just like. You go, good old Alfred Hitchcock. That's how it ended, you know. And you go to bed as a little kid and it's like, oh, my. (laughs) But that's how I see fixed concentration. I was like, you just want it all to stop, right? Stop. And the the, the anchor is actually meant to be like that somewhat for us. But that's what's so funny, somewhat, you know. Because the breath is moving. The sounds are, you, you still can't, aren't meant to be controlling like a pleasant or an unpleasant sound if you're with hearing. You know, there's that buzz and then there's this nice bird and then there's a sneeze and, you know, it's moving. But you still, if you're with an anchor, if you need to, you're meant to actually ignore everything else until you build up enough rest to explore again. So in Vipassana, say, you know, you have, again, the fixed concentration here. That, that's the f- fixed, fixed. And then the momentary, conscious, you know, hearing, smelling, tasting, hearing, 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 thinking, thinking, you know, that constant change. If you're anchoring, it's meant to be a rest somewhat. And then you'll hear the instruction when there's somewhat some semblance of stillness, you know, some concentration, but it's still momentary, then you open to what's predominant. So when something becomes apparent, I like the word apparent, when something becomes predominant or apparent, it's pretty choiceless, you'll go. But instead of pulling it back to the anchor like you would if you need the rest, you let the attention explore. You take the time. There's no rushing. There's no rushing back to an anchor. Um, And that starts to feel peaceful. It's not the rest. It's the peace. So the, the movement is toward, instead of more and more exclusion and more and more repression, through the power or strength of mindfulness, you start to be able to include more and more of what's happening because you have the strength of mindfulness. And if you don't, it's okay to rest. So if you have a pain, anything, physical, emotional, or mental, if there's something painful and you can't be mindful of it, the, the purpose of the anchor is to have a place to go, a safe harbor. It's not a weakness. It's not avoidance to move away from pain if you're not able to be mindful of it. It's wise. It's skillful. As we start to understand this, we start to see that the, the way Vipassana goes is rest, exploration, rest, exploration. And you can't do that perfectly. I mean, we know. It, that sounds great, right? That, oh, piece of cake. Okay. You know, but it's not that pretty. It, you can't make a nice little package and say this is how it's going to be. But that's the attempt um, to understand that when you, get in, when you get yourself into a big knot, <laughs> you know, that you go to the safe harbor. And, of course, we can make a problem out of anything. 
No. It reminds me of um, sometime this year uh, there was this incredible mouse explosion. Like, incredible. And I don't want to totally gross you out, but I will because just any description of it is so intense. It's like the highway, it was like it had a fur coat. It was that bad. And if somebody drove up my driveway, it was like, it, it, you would, just driving up the driveway, you'd kill three or four mice. Just, it was just crazy. And um, so I've taken the precept of not killing, right? And this was serious. I mean, it was just incredible, I have to say. And um, it was very interesting being in a neighborhood with it because there's this range of people in the neighborhood that will kill right away, right? And then there's some people who really don't want to kill, but like it, it started to get really bad. And then there's like one, two Buddhists around that don't want it, don't want to. They're committed to that, um, and it got very complicated. <laughs> Very complicated. Really interesting. So I remember one neighbor that she was just so sure she wasn't going to kill. But then she started putting out pots of water so they drowned. No, I'm, you know, like it was sort of passive, right? Uh, sort of, you know. But the trouble with if there's this many mice, you know, I had a neighbor who'd like, he'd come home from work and he'd put out like five, you know, the killing traps, the snap ones in the garage, uh, go take a shower, come back, throw them, you know, kill, take the five mice out. I'll cook dinner, come back, five more. No, this was 30 to 40 to 50 a day. I mean, it was ser- it was really intense, um, really beyond the beyond. Very, what you'd call out of balance. <laughs> 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 and it was driving us all pretty crazy. So if you went out for a walk, it's all anybody talked about. You know, and we met this family in, um, you know, 60 miles away. And this woman was crazy, you know. And she, like, they bought 30 pounds of poison. You know, it just, it really got, this is what I find interesting about life, because we can have this idea, I'm I'm a peaceful person, or I don't want to kill, but sometimes life presents you with these really difficult situations. And so if you don't want to kill these, it's not just that you have these little traps that, you know, accumulate, but you have to take them somewhere. You have to drop them. You can't drop them off at your neighbor's house. That's right. That's not very nice. You know, I mean, you know, and you also know they're just going to go into the poison or the snap trap. So it got much more complicated because I started to feel like this criminal. I'd go out at night, you know, so no one would see me, right? And I'd try to go to a place where there's no no people around, you know, but you run out of places kind of quick. It's like, oh, here's the 50th mouse you've dropped off at this place. And my favorite place was this place. Um, it was so funny. It was like a Kmart, Macy's movie theater, you know, mall. And um, it was the perfect conditions. It was dar- dark, and nobody was in the back, and there was all this land in back. Like, it was like this, you know, it was like a little strip mall, but actually in back, it was like completely, you know, it could house hundreds of mice. <laughs> 
But still, my commitment really started to wane. You know, it was just, I just got so sick and tired of this, you know, and I got so sick and tired of it. And one morning, like, this is feral cats right outside, right? And I just was like, I could just drop that. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody would know. (laughs) The Buddha, I don't care. Anybody, I don't know. I'm sick of it. You know, it just got so hard to, like, care about these mice. But every time I would drop them off and I would let them out of the little trap, they'd always look at me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was like they'd thank me. Now, really, it was so moving. And that's what kept me going, was this connection that would happen from making this effort. And I have to say, I, in terms of like that precept, I haven't been that um, challenged in a long, long time. And it was through that remembering the connection and just staying um, in touch with that connection. And this is like this is what we forget about this practice. It's because we, if we think it's a state-oriented practice, and we forget that it's the connection with the loneliness that's important. It's the connection with the happiness that's important. It's the connection with the boredom. I mean. There's nothing like boredom, right, in Vipassana practice. You have to go through it again and again and again. I mean, nothing really does seem to be (laughs) happening. And that's so, it's like, but that you're getting a relationship with that. It's not, it's like it's not going in the direction you think. It's going in the direction of more and more of a relationship with it, not less and less. And that's what I found with this mouse thing. It was like, okay, you take this wonderful little precept of not healing. But actually, it, it kept forcing me to get more and more of a relationship with these mice. Not less. But that was, it, I'm not saying that was easy. It's one of the hardest couple months I've ever had. It was excruciating. So I think that this is um, an interesting thing about life, right, and about the practice, is that if you've done some practice, this will make sense, but there's plenty of areas where we still resist. And it's the resistance that's painful. But again, if if you keep putting in your time, most of the time you remember that, that this is about relationships. It's about getting a relationship with what's appearing. Getting rela- It's not about what's happening. It doesn't matter what the experience is. What matters is the relationship uh, with the experience. And anything that we're still afraid of means that we resist it. It's the resistance that's so painful. So say, um, say boredom comes up, um, and we want to investigate it. 
So it's like rather than move away from it to the anchor, we might have the sense that there's enough energy, mindfulness, concentration to actually be interested in it. If there is a version that comes up to the boredom, you can't investigate the boredom. Because what's happened is that not liking it is predominant. And when the not liking it is predominant, one needs to step back and investigate that. And this is where we get mixed up, because it's like with anything, say sleepiness comes up, and we're sort of like, you know, we're all ready to, like, I'm going to try being with this, right? And yet, it's not, we forget that maybe if it's unpleasant and there's a dislike of it, that we're trying to do the exploration, but we're investigating something that actually isn't happening in the present moment anymore. And that's why, you know, that's why this long retreat, if you're, we're at, you know, the third night, classic, <laughs> it's, you know, it's very difficult to get through the first few days. Um, and then there's enough quiet, it takes a lot to actually get here. You know it. I'm just naming it. We're here. We're here now, and it's like there'll be the ups and downs of like seeing what I'm saying, which is you know we'll we'll think we're up for something, and then we're um, attached to the good sitting that was happening, you know, two hours ago, and that's the filter. We're trying to get to something. (laughs) Maybe we're trying to get to some physical sensation, but actually we're in the past, and you know it's like. It's, um, it takes a certain kind of humor to be able to go, oh, I'm just actually not being honest. You know, this makes, this makes one more and more honest. And it, it's just being able to go, oh, <laughs> my good friend attachment. <laughs> I was hoping I could work for that today. Right? And, it's, and then you just assess, maybe we need some compassion. Maybe you don't go to it at all. Maybe you do some loving kindness. And when I first started practicing, I have to say, it's like if you resorted to loving kindness, it was like you were some kind of really bad yogi. You know, it's just like, heaven forbid, you should need some kindness. (laughs) That's really the minor leagues, right? You know? And I like I'm still stupefied by that. (laughs) We need so much kindness; it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. We are so hard on ourselves, you know. And we're trying to get this right. We're trying to perfect this. This is the best thing for trying to be perfect, right? You can't. You actually can't do this perfectly. Uh, and then even that, if you just, if we just understand that, like how much compassion we'd have for each other. Uh, and I always wish that somebody would volunteer for their mind to be broadcast just for, <laughs> just for one sitting, right? Just one sitting. If we could hook up somebody's mind to a, a loudspeaker, you know, <laughs> If you could do that everywhere on the planet, it would just make everybody so compassionate. 
I said, it would be so humiliating. You know, nobody would do it. Nobody. The Dalai Lama wouldn't do it. Nobody would do it. Because it's humiliating if you take it personally. You wouldn't want anybody to hear your mind. It's just just listen to it for five minutes. And just imagine yours being on a loudspeaker, you know? Just like, but you think, you know, we think we're the only one. It's everybody in the room. And it's noisy. (laughs) It's loud. And then you, you know, you put, like, how many of us are on the planet and how loud it is. And then, you know, just the most enormous compassion would come. Just, just imagine what is going on inside everybody's head. It is amazing and so motivating. So motivating. So when we get into this understanding of how much we want to do this right because actually we do want to be peaceful. I mean, I think that the karma, if you're in this womb, there is such a strong karma for wanting to be peaceful, to wanting to be free, for wanting to be kind. You know, it's like you wouldn't be here if you didn't want that. And that it's so moving. And, you know, it's just getting again, like, how hard it actually is. Really. And then that that sweetness again of care, of compassion, will come and bring that kind of ease of like, okay, you know, we start again, we start again, we start again. And then if you start disentangling, like, what might be aspects of mindfulness you know it's like I came up with an an acronym RAIN many years ago Um, and it sort of developed uh, to a lot more than that but if you just took these aspects they're not a checklist but recognition acceptance interest non-identification um What I find really interesting about those aspects is that there are their opposites. And their opposites are very interesting as well. So recognition is, say you're just sitting there walking or eating or whatever, and all of a sudden you go, oh, (laughs) whatever, I love recognition. It's like you've just been in some kind of daze or space out or stupor, you know, and it's like, okay, it's so simple, right? You've walked for 10 minutes somewhere, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, walking. (laughs) It's great, right? You know, it's just like, it's amazing, really. That's what, that's the purity of Vipassana, knowing you're walking. It's that, that's what it is, you know? Knowing you're afraid, knowing you're happy, you know, whatever. It's like that process, knowing you're walking. You can go out and do walking med- meditation so many times and just lose the plot, right? You don't even know why we would even ask you to do it. It's just that phenomenal, right? And then all of a sudden, you go back to, oh, knowing I'm walking. It's like, oh, that's what we're doing. You know, it's just like so incredibly simple. And we make it so complicated. So that R of the rain is that recognition. It's like, 
oh, fear. When it's like recognition, it's mostly okay at that point, even without the A-I-N. Recognition. Anger. You know, I'm conditioned to, I mean, the, the amount of conditioning I had to like not even be able to have an angry thought, you know, I had to look like it was just no. Even like Pete was like anger, right? So it's like when anger comes, I mean, I've worked with it a lot, but there's still usually like the, you know, not okay, you know? (laughs) So recognition for me is like, oh, anger. It's like, it's totally like, okay, but the resistance to it is enormous. Pretending. I'm not angry. I'm you know, like uh, snooping on top of the doghouse, but you know, just shooting everything. You know, that's like I need that. I need to see that and pretend to do it because the, the repression is so enormous. You know, <laughs> it's like I need that little poster. You know, Snoopy up there just going. Hur, hur, hur. <laughs> It's okay to feel this way. Acceptance and the resistance to it. Again, I talked about it, so I don't have to talk about it so much. But really, the more you practice, the more you see that that resistance is most of the suffering. And I, I, like you know, the question this morning about what I meant by it's not agreement, it's not condoning. By saying, oh, anger, that doesn't necessarily, you don't have to get into a big moral discussion with it, whether it's right or wrong. It's just anger. And if you just let it come through, you feel the physical sensations that come with it. And you notice the thoughts, it comes and goes like a weather pattern. It's fine. But we tend to have to get all righteous and we get into the thoughts and we get writer and writer and writer and writer and writer and and we totally miss the experience of anger and then we usually blow up at somebody or we get sick i mean you know it's just no 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 skill we don't learn the skill we don't as jesse was saying we don't have the training and interest um each of these, it's like you can't make them happen, but interest, it's like a, a real shift. It, it's just to be interested in anger or to be interested in happiness without getting lost in it. To be, you know, like you, to be interested in the experience of enjoyment without being lost in it, without being, taking it personally. They're equally hard. And any experience, it's like that being able to be really genuinely interested in pain to be genuinely interested in pleasure to be genuinely interested in neutral it takes a certain amount of energy so hence the rest hence the anchor the anchor is meant to be a rest don't underestimate it it's not some baby step it's something we need a lot. 
It's not like you're supposed to go, oh, I do all this anchoring and then I'm going to be in choiceless awareness the rest of my life. It's not, it's not, it's more like skillful means. It's just that sometimes we need the rest and sometimes we need the pure exploration. And depending on outer and inner circumstances, we'll need more or less of them are happening. It doesn't matter. It's not personal. But certainly we know when we're tired, we're vulnerable. When we're tired, we're taking things much more personally. And then the, the, the N is non-identification. Um, that sense that it's my body, it's my fear, it's my happiness, it's my enjoyment, it's my whatever, it's my liberation. <laughs> Me, 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 me. Or it's you, you, your, 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 my, my, my. It's um, that deep sense that um, everything's referring back to us. Versus, again, that our body is just made up of food. And our mind is just made out of thoughts that are really just coming and going. It's process. Emotion is coming. Emotion is interesting in that it's usually a combination of body sensation and thought, but it's still impermanent coming and going. But when we hear these, I think, again, sometimes it's helpful if we're suffering a lot, to kind of look and see, well, are any of these present? Are any of these possibly present? When all four are present, we tend to feel quite peaceful. The opposites are fascinating. So the opposite of recognition is spacing out. I find the more I am fine with spacing out, the more... I can recognize. The more I'm hard on myself for spacing out, then there's less energy and there's less ability to be mindful. And if you look closely, you know, it's like um, there was this dog that lived um, up the street from this meditation center when I first worked there in 78. I still remember him. His name was Roscoe. This huge black dog. And he was completely tied up like and through the winters but just a chain right to his neck like he had no wiggle space um, and he just couldn't make contact he just couldn't be intimate at all it was so painful to, to, to be with you know and I tried to like I gradually made a little bit of friends with him over a little bit of time but um it just reminded me of myself. <laughs> you know, just how little I could actually be there, be here, be here when I first started to practice. And it's like, again, getting, learning that it's all about a relationship with whatever is happening that allows this sense of intimacy with life. If you can't, then of course you have to distance. You know, of course, distance meaning, you know, lost in thought. It's okay. It's not like you've murdered somebody to be lost in thought. You know? It's like, it's just <laughs> what we do. These are all defenses to, to just cope. 
So the more you, when you notice you, you know, you're doing it, and you go, oh, okay. And, but you see if you can come back. You just see if you can come back. And then, you know, you can't control that you've gone off. Try it. You can control that you've come back. When you notice you're gone, you come back. If you could control that you went, you'd be fully enlightened by now. (laughs) You would. So what you start to see is that, you know, you just get really realistic. Oh, I, you know, if I didn't choose to go off there initially... But when you notice it, you have a choice then to go back into it or not, right? And that's that choice point. Even if you give yourself the space, come back for a second. Maybe you slip off again, but I can assure you that it's the coming back that matters. Going off doesn't have anything to do with that. What matters is you, you recover, you recover, you recover. You could go off a hundred times in a minute, but that practice of coming back is what matters. And then A, acceptance, resistance. I think I've done enough on that, but again to say, boy, if you know how much we're resisting, you got to come to terms with it. It's just, we're doing it a lot. So learning how to actually... and care about others' resistance. It's, it's a beautiful, I think it's the most beautiful quality one can cultivate. And then, of course, the opposite of interest is um, boredom. Indifference, not wanting to be here. I, mean, I don't want to be here a lot. How about you? <laughs> that's you know that's why we're not here <laughs> because we don't want to be, and it's okay. And, and it, it's so interesting. It's like the more I've practiced, the more when I notice that, rather than go, but you should want to be here. <laughs> that doesn't hold up for very long, you know. It's a, that's not really it. It's like oh, it's the not wanting to be here place. Let's see if I can be with that, you know. And then, and it's, I think it's a place, at least for me, with my background, there's a lot of shame around that place. You know, it's like we're not supposed to feel that way. And then N is um, the opposite of non identification, is taking things very personally. So sometimes it's fun to exaggerate that. Just, you know, just to. Um, Again, not make it bad or wrong. <laughs> my knee pain. <laughs> my fear. No, my, you know, if you like, you know, it's like you, f- you just feel it. It's like a, you just, that little self. How little can it get? <laughs> <laughs> Try to make it as little as you can. You know, it's just like that's what we want to do. We want to just get so little we disappear. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> or watch some little kid that, like, you know, wants their squirt gun, you know, or whatever. 
Srila Sarkadatta said, uh, above all, above all, treat yourself with reverence. Don't forget the above all. And this, um, it doesn't have to be naive, a naive reverence. As we learn to be with more and more of how things are, it becomes less and less naive. And and it's like... um, Deep practice, it, it really can feel like a lullaby. You know, deep equanimity is, um, you know, it's said it's the sweetest thing possible as a human being. Is this just that deep, unconditional acceptance of how things are? It, it's. Um, it doesn't mean things aren't painful. But there's that sweetness of the end of suffering. And it's not far away from us. It's like you would, again, you wouldn't be in this room if you haven't tasted that at times. So let's sit for a minute. Jodhika said to me when I saw him two years ago uh, mindfulness makes me joyful and I want to be mindful until I die So it's time for walking and then the meta chance it.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.